Okay, tonight we're in Acts 24, so open up to Acts 24. Um, before we start Acts 24, uh, just a refresher, uh, Paul goes back to Jerusalem, he's apprehended in the temple, uh, they're going to tear him apart, uh, the Roman guard protects him, takes him to the Antonio Fortress, he's secure there, claims his Roman citizenship uh, under a guard of, I think, 470 Roman soldiers, he's taken to Caesarea, He's uh, now brought on charges, and Caesarea is a coastal city. We'll see it when we go to Israel. It's a coastal city. It was resplendent. It was named after Caesar. Um, it had a, a hippodrome, and it, they had chariot races there. You can see the remnants of it. It's beautiful. It's right on the coast. I mean, it is, it's like a, a luxury resort. It, it's, it's, it's stunning, and uh, the climate is temperate, and it's lovely, and it's a Mediterranean resort location. And so Paul's there, and he's being held, as we're going to see in a moment, um, as a Roman citizen under house, kind of house arrest, but his friends are free to come and go. And, and we know who's in Caesarea. We've, we've studied that. We know that Philip's there with his prophesying daughters. Uh, we know that Cornelius the jailer is there. Uh, Simon the Tanner's there. They probably all come to visit Paul. They're excited about meeting him. And we also find at the end of chapter 24 that he's there for two years. So he's enjoying Club Med for two years, which is fascinating because prior to that, everywhere he's gone, he's just been brutalized. And now he's at Club Med for two years and he's living in the lap of luxury. This is a palace and he's, he's there in the palace and he's going to be summoned by the procurate uh, to come and speak before him. The guy's name's Felix. He's married to a woman named Drusilla. We're going to learn a little bit about them. But before we do, before we start reading, uh, I wanted to throw a couple things at you. Uh, these are some quotes that I, I pulled uh, for tonight's message. One author writes, he says, I believe that many honestly intend to change. How many people in here have made New Year's resolutions? Hey, come on, work with me. Let everybody see your hands. How many people have made New Year's resolutions? Oh, I thought more than that. All right, how many, how many of you have promised God something and you haven't done it? How many of you have promised somebody something that you haven't done? Okay. Good. Some honesty in the room. So this, this author says, I believe that many honestly intend to change, to do better, but the inconvenience of change causes us to say, when we have a new set of circumstances or when our finances are finally straight or when I get out of school or when school gets started, or when we finally have all of God that we need, or when I get a little older, or when I get a little more spiritual. And I would just simply pose this question to all of you in regards to convenience. When is it convenient to be all in for the Lord? And the man said, let me go and bury my mother and father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Any man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty brutal. That's not like a seeker-sensitive comment to grow a church. You know, and his other comment was, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head when he said, I'll follow you. And, and the Lord has very little tolerance uh, for those who express verbally what they're unwilling to do physically. And I can imagine there's a number of things that the Lord wants to take in our life and have lordship over that we're unwilling to surrender to him. And there's always a reason why not. Why not this week? Why not next week? Why not later? Another author says, always looking forward, caught up in the dilemma of delay, 
trapped in the lounge of looking for a better tomorrow, a more convenient time, and a better opportunity. We make a fortune, and most of our industry is developed based on convenience. Everything is based on convenience. Uh, we, we, we don't have a lot of patience. Um, I mean, I, I think when we used to get these chimichangas from Albertsons, every now and then we get them, and you put them in the microwave for a minute, and, and if I'm hungry, I'm looking at that thing going, come on. I mean, it's a minute, and it's already aggravating me. And, and I, I think of our lives that we're, we're moved by convenience. Uh, another says, men who live in confines of tomorrow always tremble when convi- conviction strikes at their heart. They have no power to respond. Another says that arrogance, arrogance is convenience, meaning that you think you have more time, but God owns our tomorrows. Men who live in the hopes of tomorrow often have their sun set while it is still day. Tomorrow has the capability to silence the voice of God. Tomorrow has the capability to shrugging off the call of the preacher. Tomorrow reduces men to worms. The great dilemma for spiritual progress to have to overcome is usually procrastination and compromise. You know what you need to do. You just don't want to do it, and you're going to wait till later. You think of the five foolish virgins who didn't have oil in their lamps. The Lord didn't have patience for them. The guests who refused the feast because of worldly commitments, and Jesus went out to the streets to go get the ones who were ready. And we have all kinds of excuses for the Lord. The people the Lord called, but they first wanted to fix the things of their world, like the man who said, let me go bury my mother and father. We have all kinds of reasons why we don't do what God's called us to do. There's a couple others that I want to look at, and then we'll get into the text. This author says, we live in an age that thrives on convenience. The high demand for convenience is largely due to the fact that we live under the tyranny of the urgent and the rapid hustle and bustle of life. Why don't you have time to read in the morning? Or pray? We're busy. Tyranny of the urgent. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Convenience is defined as a fitness or suitability for performing an action or fulfilling a requirement. Something as an appliance, device, or service conducive to comfort or ease. And lastly is the freedom from discomfort. Something to create ease. So it's the freedom from discomfort. We, we don't want to do what the Lord's saying because it's going to be uncomfortable to our flesh. And so we find some sort of an excuse of convenience to avoid the commitment. The famous philosopher Hesiod said, the man who procrastinates struggles with ruin. The man who procrastinates struggles with ruin. Tomorrow is the day when idlers work and fools reform and mortal men lay hold of heaven. Procrastination is the thief of time and year after year it steals till all are fled. And to the mercies of a moment leaves the vast concerns of an eternal state At 30, a man suspects himself a fool, knows it at 40, and reforms his plan. At 50, chides his infamous delay, pushes his prudent purpose to resolve, and in all the height of thought, resolves and resolves, and then dies the same as he started. As Saul said, I've played the fool and erred exceedingly. He never got it. Nothing ever changed. If today has slain its thousands, then tomorrow has slain its ten thousands. A fatal mistake, this thing of not today, maybe tomorrow. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, I'll read it to you. It says, In an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. 
Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's the Lord speaking. But many say in that day, Lord, Lord, and accomplish little in God's name. When he said, didn't we visit you in prison? Didn't we feed the hungry? He says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. We come up with every kind of excuse why we thought we served the Lord, but we never did. Tomorrow, I will pray. But did you today? Tomorrow, I will fast. Tomorrow, I will lose weight. Tomorrow, I will read my Bible. Tomorrow, I will find a a talent and devote it to God. Tomorrow, I will tithe. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, I allow God to use my life in a way that he wants. Tomorrow, when I am older and more mature, I will find time for God. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And yet, Corinthians says, today is the day of salvation. I pulled all these down because... This passage is frightening. This passage is frightening. And I pray that that prepares us for what we're about to receive from the Lord because if tomorrow is in our vernacular and it takes precedent over today and and now, we're in trouble. Quite frankly, as Christians, we're in trouble. It's burdensome. And there's applications that need to be found in the text this evening. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And as we embark on this, God, not condemnation, but conviction, that we would be challenged not to live tomorrow, but to live today, to honor you today, to pray today, to read today, to do those things you've called us to do today, now, now, to heed the call of your spirit upon our lives and not to procrastinate and not to let the thief of time steal the obedience to God. So Lord, speak to us now, we pray, according to your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a look at the text, Acts 14, or excuse me, Acts 24, verse 1. Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullius. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So they're building a case against Paul, and the Roman, um, the Roman government is saying he's a citizen. What is this case that you have? The, uh, the man in charge during the, the tumult that had happened in the temple, the Roman in charge just simply said, I want to ascertain what is being accused of Paul. We're going to have a hearing. And so we find Tertullius has been assigned as the orator or as the attorney for uh, the prosecution. Verse 2, and when he was called upon, Tertullius began his accusation saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace, and he's, he's blowing you know, sunshine towards the Romans and wanting to get um, their favor. He says, seeing that through you we enjoy great pre- peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. By the way, Felix is the Roman procurate. He's a very fascinating man in history. He's the only procurate in the entire history of the Roman Empire that was a slave at the beginning of his life, obtained citizenship, and went on to have a position of authority over um, a region of Rome. His mother uh, was the maid to Claudius's mother and cared for her. And uh, Felix and his brother Paulos both were were in the household as slaves to Claudius and Claudius's mother. Claudius was Caesar. And they served uh, in, in the, the, the capital of, of Rome. And, um, and it was because of this that, 
that Claudius, uh, the service that, that um, Felix's mother had extended, her name was Antonio, because of the service that she extended to Claudius's mother, um, they were given their freedom, they were given their citizenship. Paulus, uh, Felix's brother, rose to a rank where he actually sat next to Claudius uh, as he ruled over Rome, and it was probably his doing that uh, brought Felix to this place of being a procurate over this region of the Roman Empire, and as he's sitting in this, this seat of importance in Caesarea, uh, he, he's, he's there because his brother has the ear of the, of the Caesar. And a fascinating man, he, he grew up a slave, he had seen the rough side of the world uh, both he and his brother made a fortune. They were exceptionally wealthy. Uh, as you read in Josephus's writings, these two brothers were unbelievably wealthy. Felix was also a player. Uh, he had been married twice before, and he's now we're going to see with Drusilla is not even his third wife. Uh, he's just he's he's hooked up with her. Um, she's still by by Jewish law, and we're going to find her to be Jewish on her mother's side. Um, she was Herod Agrippa's daughter, and uh, she had a, a Jewish lineage, and she was previously married. Uh, she was married to Antonio, uh, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra's son. Uh, she, that was, no, I'm sorry. A- Anthony, and, Anthony and Cleopatra's daughter was married to Felix. We don't know who uh, Drusilla's husband was, but she hadn't divorced him yet. And so... Um, at this time, uh, the writing of this, she's probably about 17 or 18 years of age, and she is a stunning beauty. Uh, Josephus writes about her beauty that it was just, you know, everybody wanted to look like Drusilla. She was a hottie. And here she is, 17, 18 years of age. She's already abandoned her first marriage. Um, Felix is already through two wives, and he's going into this third wife. He asked for a hand in marriage, but she hadn't divorced her previous husband. They wouldn't allow it in the temple, and there's kind of a brouhaha, but she's living with him as though she's the queen. And um, they've got a very lavish lifestyle, lifestyles of the rich and famous. They have every amenity known to men at their disposal, and they live in the lap of luxury. And at 17 years of age, maybe 18, she's got it all. I mean, she's got it all. If, if you had gold cell phones with diamonds encrusted, she had it. Uh, it was the six plus or whatever the great one is. She had everything imaginable. She drove the nicest cars, wore the finest clothing, had the latest gadgetry, was surrounded by a, a bevy of, of servants that just at her beckoning call, whatever she wanted, it was hers. And it, it, given everything you want at 17 or 18, you can have a real interesting attitude towards life. You know, you, you see some of these burnout celebrities, uh, child celebrities, that they, they just get inundated with money and their whole world turns upside down. And, and you, you've been there, done that, you got the t-shirt and you're just wondering what life is all about. You become hardened, you become cold, you become calculating, and you navigate through life with this attitude. Well, this is Felix and this is Drusilla. And so at this point, um, we see Felix 
come into the, the picture in verse three. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix with all thankfulness. So they're addressing the procurate of Rome, who is Felix. He's sitting on this throne. He's listening to this case as Tertullius is a prosecuting attorney and he's bringing these accusations against Paul and he's also blowing sunshine towards Felix. Verse four, nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. So it's actually uh, maybe the state Supreme Court or uh, the Seventh Circuit Court or maybe it's even in, in as far as Israel's concerned, this is the Supreme Court of the land. They're before Felix. They can appeal to Rome, but at this point, uh, Felix represents Rome and he has full authority to rule in this case. For we have found, verse 5, for we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this is another commentary, and it's a, it's a bash on Christianity. They had a couple of, uh, of caustic terms for Christianity. One was they called it the way, because Jesus had the audacity to say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So they took his own words, and they made it a derogatory statement to call Christianity the way. Like, you know, all roads lead to heaven, but apparently they're the only ones who know the way. Sound familiar? And, and, and then the other one is they said the sect of the Nazarenes um, because they, they, they considered the, uh, the Nazarenes the least and, and he was a Nazarene. And so they, they just make a, a, a make, making fun of the, of the faith. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. So this is where Tertullius makes a mistake in his his oratory um, prosecution of Paul, he, he, um, he brings an accusation against a Roman when he accuses Lysias of great violence and took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Well, immediately, uh, Felix is leaning probably towards the defense because uh, Tertullius is accused of a Roman soldier of great violence taking Paul out of their hands. And they didn't have a lot of patience for Jewish law, and, and they were actually irritated. It wouldn't be much time after that that all of Israel would fall prey to, the, to Rome's hand. Verse 10, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered. And, and so the governor just nods his head. Paul steps up in his defense. He doesn't have an attorney. He has to do it himself. Now, Paul has a great legal mind, as we've been reading in the book of Romans on Sunday mornings. He has a tremendous legal mind. And he's, he's heard Tertullius before, and he's going to contend with Tertullius on his own defense. But what's fascinating about this, and if you pay attention to it, you'll see it. Felix isn't some dumb bumpkin. He is... He's up on, on all the religious sects in his area, and he's done a good job. But he, another thing about Felix is he is a violent, brutal man. He doesn't suffer fools kindly. One of the things that will happen to him at the end of the chapter is that he is going to get a dictate and be replaced all the way from Rome, and he's going to be sent into exile, where later in his life he'll commit suicide. Um, but, and that's because of his brutality, and it's going to be stated um, in, when you read the works of Josephus. So the governor nodded to him to speak and answered. And Paul said, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So what Paul is saying is, where's the evidence of what this man, he, he, he speaks a good line, but where's his evidence? It's been 12 days and they have no one to bring evidence of his accusations. You've got to have witnesses. Verse 14, but this I confess to you that according to the way, and, and you know what's fascinating? Paul's not in, insulted by the term. He uses it because he knows that Felix can relate to it. Paul's done his homework as well. Be all things to all men that you might win some. If somebody wants to use a derogatory term towards Christianity, an offended brother is harder one than a fortified city. We have to choose to be offended. Just water off a duck's back, use whatever they're saying, and just come back with it. So that you, you don't argue picking fly poop out of pepper. You don't argue over the peripherals. Just stay on the course. That's all you got to do. Paul isn't insulted by the term the way. He ties it in with his, his uh, defense. He says, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law of the prophets. Jesus didn't come to, to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. Let me have course. Verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. And there will be a resurrection of the dead. You remember, that's where it all started. Paul understood wisely that the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had division. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And I use that comment. That's why they're Sadducee. And the Pharisees did believe in a, in a resurrection. Paul addressed that and immediately divided the court. And they started arguing amongst themselves. And Paul had taken the focus off himself and put it on those guys to argue amongst themselves. And then all hell broke loose. It didn't work the way Paul was hoping. But he still addresses it here. And he just simply says, I believe in a resurrection of the dead. Half of them do and half of them don't. And Felix knows this. He knows about the Sadducees. He knows about the Pharisees. And he's thinking, well, this is just a simple argument. And Paul's laying it out. Paul says, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Paul even apologized for saying what he said about the 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 leader of the Pharisees. He apologized for calling him a whitewashed sepulcher, an empty tomb, a whitewashed tomb. Paul didn't seek to offend those in authority. Paul wanted to honor those positions of authority. Verse 17, now after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. He travels a large distance. He comes to bring supplies. They knew he did. And Felix understands that people are suffering in his own region, and he's thankful for this. In the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. There's nobody here to object. Nobody has anything. There's no witnesses, Felix. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. They, they argue amongst themselves about resurrection. Why am I being prosecuted for their own division? It's not a big deal. I stand on the side of the Pharisees as opposed to the Sadducees. This, why am I the one who's going to be focused on this as though somehow I brought division in this, in this body? But look at this, verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, what does that tell you? He's sharp. 
He has an accurate knowledge of the way. He had actually studied Christianity. He wanted to know more about it. He was inquiring about Christianity. He had asked questions. He wanted to understand what all this was. He wanted to know about all the stories he had heard about this Messiah who would heal the sick, raise the dead. He wanted to hear about this guy who walked on water and and, and all the stories about the empty tomb. And he knew what happened with the soldiers. He knew about the cover-up. He was at the highest levels of authority. He knew it all. He wanted to know more. He had investigated these things. He had firsthand accounts of these things. And here he is in in the presence of, of somebody whose life had been radically changed and had heard stories about the great apostle Paul. And this guy is is kind, he's considerate, he's, he's articulate, he's laying it out. And Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way. He adjourned the proceedings. He just hits the gavel, he adjourns the proceedings. And when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. I want to talk to Lysias, the one that you, Tertullius, have accused. I want to talk to Lysias. Well, immediately, when the court adjourns, and we know this with the Supreme Court, based on the questions they're asking or the witnesses that they're asking for, we kind of have a knowledge of where they're leaning in their decision. And Tertullius is looking at all of the folks that hired him to be the orator for the prosecution, and they're realizing, oh man, I shouldn't have um, invoked Lysias's name. Now I've gotten Rome against me. And he says, I'm going to wait till Lysias gets here and inquire of him. Well, now the prosecution's like thinking, oh man, we got a mess on our hands. Now watch this. Verse 23, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty. Well, that's another sign that it's going the way of Paul. And what did God say to the apostle Paul? He said, you will testify of me in Rome. You know what's fascinating about that? He believed God. Even after he had failed him, and we covered this last week, God gave him another call. He says, you're going to go to Rome and testify for me. So Paul steps up in front of Felix, and he is fearless because he takes God at his word. And he has the ability to articulate, and he's not stumbling on his words, and and his mind and his heart are working in unison, and there isn't fear, and there isn't emotion enveloping him. He's just laying out the facts, and he's doing it in a very articulate and kind manner. And Felix is moved. He's so moved by Paul's presentation of his defense that he says, I'm going to let him have liberty. Liberty means we keep you away from them because they're going to kill you, but you have full access to the grounds of the palace. That is a gift of Club Med. it, It couldn't be any better for Paul. But for Paul, being on vacation in Club Med is driving him crazy. Paul's about the father's business. None of these things move me. I want to testify that I would be accursed, that my brethren would be saved. Paul's not interested in vacation. Paul's not interested in the lap of luxury. Paul's looking for every opportunity to preach the gospel in season and out of season. He's not looking for the comfort of the world. He's looking for the conviction of the Lord to, com- to, to continue in this call of the gospel. He said he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So there, you can just imagine Philip coming in with his prophesying daughters and they're worshiping the Lord and they're having a great conversation by firelight and they're bringing supplies for him to enjoy and he's, he's sitting by you know, the Mediterranean Ocean with the cool breezes as they're reflecting back and telling stories and writing out scriptures and, and there Luke is with him and he's visiting him and Luke is writing down the book of Acts and he's, he's reflecting back on the gospel according to Luke and, and, and for two years they're having a great time and not only does Philip come, but there is um, 
And Cornelius coming with his whole family who came to Christ talking about how the, the cell was shaken and, and they were all set free. And, and Simon the Tanner's coming and talking about how all these things happened. And it was, it's just fascinating. And these Gentiles who've come to Christ and then the, the, some of the Pharisees, this drove of Pharisees that come to the Lord. Quite possibly Nicodemus was one who came to visit Paul because we, we find from Josephus that Nicodemus... Uh, the wedding of his daughter was the most opulent in all of Jerusalem. But when he gave his heart to the Lord and, and went with, um, uh, uh, who was the one who asked for the body of Jesus? It was, yes, Joseph of Arimathea. So when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came for the body of Christ, Nicodemus was done. He was, he was, they, he was finished. Um, they, they didn't want anything to do with him. So his wealth was ruined. His, his whole livelihood was lost. It's said of his daughter that she went from the most opulent wedding, wedding in Jerusalem to picking grain out of the, the stalls of, of the stables, trying to survive. And you can imagine Nicodemus there as an elderly man reflecting with Paul about all these people coming to Christ throughout Corinth and, and Troas and, and all these different areas of the Mediterranean and all of them rejoicing. And it's a very precious time. And all of his friends get to provide for a visit with him. And then we come to the text tonight that I want to focus on. Verse 24. After some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, and they say wife, but in reality, they weren't married, according to Josephus, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Felix is sitting in the lap of luxury. He's reflecting on his life. He heard Paul's dissertation of his defense against Tertullius, and, and uh, he has a, a sympathy for that. He's investigated all of the... the, the uh, the claims of the way. He's, he's looked at all the claims of Christ. He's probably spoken to folks. He's heard all the, the stories and the rumors and seen the eyewitnesses. And, and uh, Felix is, is moved by these things. Something has touched him. Something's touched him so deeply that he turns and he says, hey, Paul's in the palace somewhere. Go get him. I want to sit down and I want to discuss with him and have some discourse with Paul. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was, a Jewish, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So, so Paul's like, man, you know, he's going to bring me in the court of kings and, and the Holy Spirit, you won't know what to speak, but the Holy Spirit will make intercession and you'll know what to say in that time and, and the Lord will help you when you open your mouth in obedience. And he brings him in front of Felix, the procurate, the only guy in the history of the Roman Empire that was once a slave and has now been set free. And Paul can say, I was free and I became a slave of righteousness. He's going to tie it in. He's got all these ideas of how he's going to present the gospel and he wants to talk about all the weaponry of the Roman soldiers as he did in Ephesians. He's just going to lay it all out there. In his mind, he's been swirling this thing as he's been sitting there and talking with all of his friends. He just can't wait to stay with Felix. And Drusilla's there and she's pretty, but I won't look there. I'm just going to talk to Felix, right? And, and it doesn't necessarily say that um, Drusilla's thrilled about this. She's probably over there just going, oh my gosh, this is just so ridiculous. Why do we have to sit here and listen to this guy yatter, yatter, yatter? I mean, where's, I have a text. I need to do some Pinterest, there's things that need to happen right now, and I just don't need, oh my gosh, he just doesn't stop all this legal talk, and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because she's all about what's happening. She's all about the pleasure of life, and, and she's almost like Salome. Salome, the one that danced in front of Herod, and, and her erotic dance was so moving that he said, anything up to half my kingdom, 
And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. We know her name to be Salome. It's not in the scriptures. We know her name to be Salome again from Josephus. And Josephus, um, when he lays this out, that, that, that woman didn't have a very good life. She was one who had been ruined by, by overindulgence. The, the Danish proverb, when, when you give to a child when they whine, or a pig when it oinks, you, find a, you end up with a fine pig and a rotten child. Salome was rotten. Drusilla was rotten. They had everything and nothing. They were, they were trapped in the jungles of prosperity. Trapped in the jungles of pleasure. And so, verse 25. Now as he reasoned about these three things, what were they? He reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Oh. oh. First of all, talking about self-control to somebody who has none. They talk about money as being an accelerant. Like, like gasoline is an accelerant to a fire. Is that right? Fireman? Uh, fireman's back there. You're a Marine. I'm not talking about guns. Gasoline is an accelerant to a fire. Money is an accelerant to the human soul. That's why those who win the lottery end up imploding. Because really what you've done is you've got somebody who has no ability to make money. Uh, They're playing the lottery. They sit around dreaming most of the time. They get the money. It ruins them and their family immediately. All it does is it rapidly reveals the emptiness of your soul. I've met kids that are, you know, trust fund kids, and they're worthless. They just, the money accelerates them to nothingness, implodes them. And, and, and you look at this, money takes an enormous responsibility, and the wealthier you are, the harder your life is. You have to, every, I, I've, I've traveled with, with a billionaire. Everywhere he goes, there's a bodyguard with him. Everywhere he goes, a bodyguard. Everything has to be locked up. He has to make sure that everything, people are tracking him. And and every, his phone never stops ringing for people wanting money. Because that person is the gatekeeper to my future happiness. And all I got to do is convince them why I need, why, why he needs to give me his money. Right? Endless. Ringing, 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 ringing. Endless. And so, Money is an accelerant to the human soul. And, and they have been inundated with money. What does it do? It reveals your addictions. If you had all the money you needed, what would you spend it on? Well, of course, I'd tie 10% of it. You don't do it now. Why would you do it then? Right? That's a joke. No, I'd tithe if I got the money. And then, and then the other one, well, and then I'd buy a, a house for my, my parents, and then, and then I'd buy for my siblings. Not a lot for my siblings, because a couple of them were irritating. Um, what about the, the nieces and the nephews? Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd do something there. I'd do like a little trust fund for them. Yeah, sure. Well, except for the one that's, I, yeah, no, not. And, you live, and it's exhausting. You just go, you know, I hope I don't win. And the responsibility comes with that. And, and, and here's the other one. Money can allow you to engage in the secrecy of your life. 
to do the things that you shouldn't be doing. Because money has the ability to hide the consequences, but never deal with the problem. But after a while, you run out of the money to hide the consequences. The Bible says your sins will find you out. Rises to the surface. It's like whack-a-mole. There's just not enough money to hide it, right? And so, so this is what's happening. Paul comes to him, he says, I want to talk to you about two things, and then I'm going to close with a third. The first one is righteousness. That you have a right standing before God. You have a right relationship before God. That nothing stands in the way of you having access to God the Father. Because your sin separates you from the Lord. And, and do you have any remedy for the, the, the penalty of what you've committed? Do you have any method of paying that debt? You can cover the consequences on this earth, but one day you'll stand before God and you're not going to, the money doesn't work there to cover what you've done. You're not right. You may have the money now to, to be an authoritarian dictate and to crush people under your boot, but when you breathe your last and you let go of that kung fu grip upon your safe deposit box, you're going to stand before God and give an accounting of your life. Are you ready? Drusilla, listen to me. Turn off the radio. Take out the headphones. Turn off the music. Drusilla, I'm over here. No, 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 don't look at all of your friends that are over there. Could I just have your attention for a moment? But you keep going through life and play the music louder and just keep running, and you don't have to listen to anybody. I have things to do, people to see, places to go, and you're boring me, old man. And this whole thing about righteousness, I don't need righteousness. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist says in Psalm 10, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter two, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this was also vanity. Solomon didn't hold anything back in his life. He enjoyed it all. But the tragedy is, you come to a place, as Paul would later write in Ephesians chapter 4, those who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. They just become hardened. They don't care anymore. They just don't care. Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have been in the lap of luxury. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward of Christ. And Paul's probably quoting all these aspects as he, we believe him to be the author of Hebrews. He's probably saying this to Felix and Drusilla. Moses denied it, Drusilla. This is your own religious heritage. Second Thessalonians, Paul wrote in chapter 2, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You better be careful if you don't want to stop and listen because ultimately the day's going to come when tomorrow arrives and every man is given an appointment with eternity and you'll stand before God and give an accounting of your life. James wrote in chapter 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Drusilla, listen to me. Felix, listen to me. This is righteousness. This is righteousness. You need to address these areas of your life. You just can't keep running from it and whistle past the graveyard. Everyone's going to have to give an accounting of their life. You don't think you have to because of the pleasures of this world. But this is so important that you, you address these things. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 1, as he's saying this to Drusilla, and he's saying it to Felix, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You're unrighteous now. You're unrighteous now. You have no self-control. These things move you. I wrote, Paul would say later, and he, he actually would write this. Yeah, he wrote this, and he would probably comment in this. He says, none of these things move me. I'm not moved by these pleasures. Matter of fact, I want to get out of your palace. But you're moved by anyone who wants to go party. You can't say no. You're moved by somebody who wants to go and, and smoke or drop that or do this. You have no ability to say no. You're, you're, you have no self-control. You have no self-control. You can't deal with it. And it's leading to this world of ruin and unrighteousness and you're struggling. And and I want to share with you, and he points out this idea of righteousness. There are none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But a righteousness can be revealed from heaven, which is Christ dying on the cross, and you receive his gift of salvation, and you're cleansed of all unrighteousness by his blood. He pays the penalty. You're not guilty anymore, and the beauty of it is his spirit takes up residence in your life, and as you yield to it, not tomorrow, but today, God takes a hold of your life and transforms you. Don't you want this? As the servants are bringing in more delicacies and they're fanning them and they're looking at this beaten up rabbi whose face is swollen and the stories of his struggles from city to city and they think, no, I don't want that. Felix... uh, Drusilla's not moved by it, but watch what happens here. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, this is the part that was frightening, and the judgment to come. You see, Felix was older than Drusilla. He had robbed the cradle. And he knew his heart was beating. And he, he knew life was tough. And he had bouts of depression, because we knew he ultimately committed suicide. And there he is, face to face with his mortality. We don't know if a friend had died, but that's the fascinating thing about funerals. Everybody listens at a funeral, even when they pretend they're not. Because you're dealing with that which we're all affected by, death. We're all going to die and stand before God. And all the things you've done, the records will be open. And, and he's saying, These are the, this is the judgment to come. I'm not the judge, and you may think you have power, but you're going to be held in accountability. You're not going to get away with it. You can be, you can fly on Air Force One. You can have all the authority of the greatest nation on the face of the earth, but one day you will die, and you will give an accounting of what you've done. And you will have no excuse. Now when Paul got to that place, 
I'm certain that he declared as he did in 2 Corinthians, today, this can all be resolved. He didn't say, you know what? You're a divorcee, Felix, and you're an adulterer. You're living with another man's wife. He probably laid out, hey, there's an accounting. I'm going to stand before you as guilty as anybody else. I'm not denying you access. Adultery and, and, and divorce, they're not the unpardonable sin. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The only unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean you curse God. When you say, Jesus Christ, that's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the Father testifies through all creation that there's a God in heaven who loves you. Yes. Jesus testified and fulfilled all the law of the prophets and all the messianic psalms so that man is without excuse the fullness of the gospel and the fullness is, is written of Christ. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit brings conviction to all men, comes alongside, he's a restrainer of evil, and he's been speaking to you through the entirety of your life as he is tonight. And your heart's beating, you're struggling, and you realize it can all be resolved today Today is a day of salvation. Today. Today is a day of transformation. Today is a day of obedience. Today is a day of sanctification. Today is the day that God gets a hold of the part part of your life that you haven't given him. And as he shares this idea of judgment to come, when you turn a light on in a barn... At night, the rats scurry and the birds sing. Felix. Drusilla's no even, not even present. She's checked out. But Felix. Look what happens in verse 25. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. I don't want to do this Christian thing right now. I got living I want to do. God, I'm going to put you on the back burner and I'm going to dig in. I'm going to have a little fun. I'll get back to you. You know what's fascinating about that? When you're comfortable crossing the line into sin, it becomes even that much more comfortable the next time. And convenience causes your heart to harden towards God. Convenience is avoiding pain. Convenience is avoiding conflict. Convenience is avoiding submission. And we've got so many things we'd rather do than pray or read or worship. So we go to those things in the world and we put God on the burner for a more convenient time. I'll call you when I need you. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. August 24th, 
79 AD. I think that would have been a really convenient time to call on the Lord. I'll cover that in a moment. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent him more often and he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But nowhere did he give his heart to the Lord. Verse 27, after two years, Porcius, <laughs> Festus, succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. <laughs> Paul, not only am I not going to embrace your God, I'm not going to free you either. Good riddance, I'm out of here. Screw you and everybody else. Kicking me out of my position. He goes back and they put him into exile. His brother tried to stand for him, but he was so brutal that Paulos couldn't defend him in front of Claudius's court. And Felix was exiled. Josephus writes that he committed suicide. You know what suicide is? Apart from medication-induced suicide where... You don't know what you're doing because you're so pumped full of prescription drugs. But when you do know what you're doing, it's the ultimate selfish act. I'm going to take my baseball bat and my ball because you're not going to play by my rules and I quit. I'm going home. But you're not saying that to the people of the world. You're saying that to God. I refuse to submit to you and I refuse to serve them. I quit. I'm done. I don't care if it, I hope it hurts you. I hope you think about this. It doesn't work that way. He went and killed himself. <laughs> oh yeah. August 24th. 79 AD. Drusilla, when her husband was sent into exile, she ends up hooking up with another guy, has a son, 20 years old, in 79 AD, names her son Agrippa after her father, party in life, takes all the proceeds in the lap of luxury and decides to go to a place where everybody parties. She goes to Pompeii to party. I want you tonight to Google phallic symbol Pompeii. I know that sounds disgusting. That was the most decadent city on the face of the earth. Every common home had graphic portrayals of pornography. It was a city of complete self-indulgence. And in 79 AD, August 24th, Vesuvius erupted and everybody died. And I wonder if Drusilla found that to be a convenient time to cry out to God. Hopefully she had time. A question for you. In the lap of luxury, if you deny the Lord, why would you do it under trial? Was it convenient? You can have a saved soul and a wasted life. But I think the takeaway on a Wednesday night is not so much for salvation as it is for sanctification. 
Procrastination puts us in a cul-de-sac of compromise. We don't get anything done. Tomorrow's the best day to do what God's convicting us to do. And we never become the people we've always wanted to be. Tonight we learn from Felix and Drusilla there isn't a more convenient time than right now. So, there's your message. Mine too. And if you didn't get hit by it, I sure did. <laughs>